Some years ago, being for many days on a journey without work or books, I thought that it might be a fair time to write down, in fewest words, the reasons for what I believe. The thoughts were written as the crow flies, over wide lands and a long flight, without deviation from the straight line. Much was percent therefore omitted that might be said, but the continuity and coherence of the reasoning were my only aim. They who will do more solidly what I have done so slightly will deserve and receive my thanks. The text remains as it was written. The references have been since added. The four following truths are the four corners of my faith. I a necessity of my reason constrains me to believe the existence of God. 2. My moral sense, or moral reason, or conscience, constrains me to believe that God has revealed himself to me. 3. My reason and moral sense constrain me to believe that this revelation is Christianity. IV. My reason is convinced that historical Christianity is the Catholic faith. A necessity of my reason constrains me to believe the existence of God. A necessity of my reason constrains me to believe the existence of God, because I can in no other way account for my own existence. 1. If to bar this argument any man refuses to believe in the certainty of his own existence, so be it. I cannot reason with the non-existence or with the dubious entity. It needs two to make a battle. And if any man ask of me to prove to him his own existence, I am sure either that reason, which is the better part of man, is not in him or that he is trifling with it and with me. 2. The necessity that lies upon my reason is this, I know that I am. I am either uncaused or self-caused, or caused by a cause, whether it be a library St. Mary's College power or a person like myself or a cause unlike myself, as yet I do not know. There is no fourth member to this disjunctive argument. My reason can conceive none. That I am uncaused is to say that I am without beginning, always as I am, or eternal. But I can remember when I began to walk, when I began to talk, when I began to know, when my whole bodily frame in bulk and strength, and my countenance and voice were unlike what they are now. All these have been continually changing, and every change has had its beginning, and I have noted the beginning and the ending of each change. I can remember no moment when I have not been changing. I feel myself changing daily, decaying, falling away from the powers and type of my boyhood, youth, manhood, and declining into a loss and diminution of all that I was, that is to say, whether or no I was without a beginning, I am sure that I am tending to an end. I have seen my father and mother die, home, once so full, is clean swept out, and I must go at last. To tell me that I am an uncaused existence, that I am an eternal apartarante, is to try to talk me blind. The necessity of my reason, the remembrance of my past, the slow unfolding of my being all convince me at least that I am not eternal or uncaused. To tell me that my fleeting life, with all its changes, is an eternal existence apart a ante of which I have no knowledge, or consciousness, or reviving memory, is not to reason with me but to trifle. Nongata esse habens eternitates. I see all things about me, trees, flowers, fruits, the cattle and the sheep, beginning and ending. I see the same law in other men, I feel it in myself. 
I am shut up between a beginning to which I can trace upward till it is lost to memory and consciousness, and an ending which I see in others day by day, and feel in myself approaching hour by hour. I know nothing around me that is in itself a part or anti-eternal, nothing immutable, nothing uncaused. But the eternal is both uncaused and immutable. I am, however, conscious that there is in me a somewhat that will live on. When my end comes I shall still exist, non omnis maria. My reason then rejects the first member of the disjunctive argument. It is impossible by every test, physical and moral, it is contrary to all known law and to all analogy, it involves an intrinsic contradiction, and therefore my reason is constrained by a necessity to reject it. 3. That I am self-caused is still more absurd, being self-contradictory. My first consciousness before any act of thought or will told me of my existence. It said, I am. Then it said, I think, I feel. It is impossible to treat this self-causation gravely, and until it be written down by some serious objector it may be left in its intrinsic absurdity. But theories akin to it have been seriously put forward, as, for instance, the spontaneous generation of life, the spontaneous development of intelligence, the deposit of life from a planet in transit who, or from, germs of sentience, or the germ of all life, bios. These things have been written, printed, read, and, for the reputation of their authors, I hope, forgotten. The plain English of such theories is this, anything you will, only no creator. But if there be no creator all these theories involve self-causation. No germs, or planets, or bios can save them from absurdity. bios is either created, self-created, or increate, that is eternal. Is it easier to believe an eternal bios than an eternal creator? An eternal slime than an eternal intelligence? But some writers, evading the question of origin or causation, affirm that man is the perfect development of a lower animal, and this affirmation is made upon the comparison of the material and osseous structure of man with the material and osseous structure of the ape. Such writers are commonly supposed to affirm that man is linearly descended from an anthropoid ape. But, in reply, they deny this, and say that they affirm only that both man and ape descend from a common parent. But was this common parent human or apish? Or was he both, or neither, or neutral, that is, anthropoid? If anthropoid, then the legitimate posterity would be not human but apish, and man would be a deviation from the type of his ancestor. It is not my purpose here to state the reasons why I do not believe the theory of evolution to be a scientific truth. I will confine what I say to one link in the argument, namely, the supposed evolution of man. They who believe in the creation of man from the slime or the dust of the earth can have no difficulty in believing the simplicity of protoplasm, and they who believe in the descent of man from a single pair can have no difficulty in believing the largest development of differences of man and races, in terriandum specium. It is the exclusive and primeval identity of the species for which we contend. There are indeed many daring hypotheses, but there are no facts of science rendering the evolution of man from a lower animal credible or probable. I will here confine myself to this one point. The argument may be stated thus. 
Comparing the structure of man with the structure of the ape, we find the group of similitudes in the form and organization of the bones. From this it is inferred that the anthropoid ape is germinal man, and that man is the anthropoid ape made perfect. But where are the gradations of transition? Where is the approximate ape or the incipient man? Why is every known ape an ape and every known man a man? Man's place in creation, thus far is not among the apes, nor the place of the ape among men. The missing link is still wanting, the gulf has never been bridged across. Over and above all the violent absurdities of planetary, spontaneous, and batibiotic cosmogonies, the true indictment against the theory of man's descent from the ape is, that it is unscientific, UN philosophical, and based upon an inadequate and therefore an illusory induction. Let it be said that a group of similitudes between the corporeal or bony structure of the ape and of the man may be found, multiply and raise its details as high as you will. It there stands alone, one only group of similitudes, and those similitudes are found in the lowest region of man's nature. On the other hand, there are five groups of dissimilitudes between the ape and the man, and these in the highest regions of man's nature, to which no counterpart can be found in the ape. If, then, one group of similitudes refers man to the ape, five groups of dissimilitudes sever man from the ape. First is the group of articulate language. If anyone say that apes chatter is man's speech I answer, the language of man has a philosophy of personality, of action, passion, time, relations, and conditions which we call grammar. Show me an indication, as slight as the closed eye of the perturbs of the grammar of apes. The second group is the power of abstract thought which is elaborated grammar, Newton's Principia, and the electric telegraph. The third group is the creative mind which produced the Odyssey, the Divina Commedia, Hamlet, Guy Mannering, the Moses of Michelangelo, and Beethoven's pastoral symphony. The fourth group is the moral reason, discernment, and wisdom which have formed the high human life of man, and the jurisprudence and legislation of the world. The fifth group is the inward world of moral self-government and of conscious responsibility towards a supreme legislator and judge, and the forecast of the account that we must give to him hereafter. These five groups of dissimilitudes are indeed no less patent than the one group of similitudes in our bodies and bones. Disputants may shut their eyes to them, but the human race still sees them. They were dropped from no planet, they were not self-caused by spontaneous generation. An induction that takes in only one group of the lowest phenomena and excludes five groups of the highest is neither scientific nor philosophical, but an outrage on philosophy, science, and common sense. Some men, however, would rather commit intellectual suicide than acknowledge their maker. I need hardly add that the second member of the disjunctive argument is, if possible, more preposterous than the first. 4. We come now to the third member of the disjunctive argument. If I am neither uncaused nor self-caused I must have had a cause, be it whom, be it what it may. On whom or what it may be as yet I will not enter. The two first members of this argument are strictly incredible, inasmuch as they are intrinsically absurd and self-contradictory. But who will say that it is incredible that I have had a cause of my existence? 
What intrinsic absurdity or self-contradiction is there in saying that I am neither eternal nor did I make myself, but that I had a maker? There is here no outrage on common sense, it is in perfect conformity with all that I know. It is not impossible or even improbable. It becomes actually probable by reason of the impossibility of any other hypothesis. And as the necessity of the human reason excludes both of the other members of this disjunctive argument, and as it exhausts all possible suppositions, the conclusion remains master of the field, that is, the only probable, and therefore morally certain. A positivist objector may here say that the investigation of causes or origins transcends the human reason, and is therefore illegitimate and unscientific or superstitious. I answer that the whole intellectual system of mankind has ever opposed upon a belief of causation, and that my reason by a necessity of its nature compels me to speculate on the origin of all things, the agent of all actions, and the cause of all events. I have never met with anything either in myself or in the world around me that is uncaused, everything in myself and in the world around me has a cause which is either known to me, or if the cause be unknown to me it is not for that reason the less certain that a cause exists, and that, because I know nothing, and have never known anything, that has no cause. I am conscious all the day long of causing a multitude of actions or events. The primary cause of all that makes up the issue of my daily life is my own will. If I will a thing I do it, that is, I cause it. If I do not will it there is no result. The defeat of my will by external opposition in no way affects this truth. The causative power of my libraries and Mary's co-backslashlidge will may be overborne by the willpower of another stronger than mine, or by the resistance of the material world. The whole stream of human history is made up of the concurrent or conflicting wills of men. Be it ever borne in mind, that I am neither including nor excluding the divine uncaused, who is the cause of all things, because I am arguing to prove his existence, therefore I may not assume it. But an intellectual sense or instinct tells me that as all my actions are related to me as the origin or cause of them all, so I also am related to a cause and origin from which I spring. I need not here touch on the gratuitous assumption of the Contis that the notion of cause is a metaphysical superstition, and that cause and effect are only antecedents and consequence in a series which has no causative relation. If this were true of the inanimate world it is certainly false of the animate. The deliberate voluntary intentions that I put into effect by action every hour of the day are the exercise of a causative power of which I am as conscious as of my personal identity. I see also all around me, and all my life through, the same causative power exerted by other men. The political and social worlds that men build up by force of will are caused by their collective action. The visible structure of the world itself demands a like cause. Religio Vitoris. Enter tell me that I am an automaton and not a spontaneous cause of my actions all day long would contradict my perpetual consciousness, to tell me that the history of the world has not sprung from the causative power of the human will, but from an irrational mechanism, would violate not only my consciousness, but my reason. In like manner to tell me that there is no cause of my existence, that I am what I am without any antecedent and adequate power from which I spring involves a violation of my reason, and covertly asserts that I am either uncaused or self-caused, which are both absurd, self-contradictory, 
and self-destructive. 5. The third and last member of the disjunctive argument, beyond which no other or further supposition can be made, remains therefore in possession as possible and probable, and by the necessity of my reason morally certain, confirmed by the experience of my daily life and by the witness of the world around me. Such is my meaning when I say the necessity of my reason constrains me to believe in the existence of God. I speak of God simply as the cause of my existence. I do not say what he is, whether personal, or intelligent, or good, but only that he is, and that he is the true and adequate cause why I am what I am. I do not say that this conclusion gives me any idea, for the term idea is precise, definite, and univocal. It is in its origin platonic, and when used in any other sense it becomes a cause of confusion and ambiguity. According to Plato, an idea is a mental image or archetype of a thing or being, existing or to exist, or that may exist, residing in the divine mind. Nothing confused, indefinite, and incomprehensible is an idea. I can have knowledge without an idea. I know the existence of power, but I have no idea of power. I know that a cause is a power on the action of which something else depends, but I have no idea of a cause. I may have knowledge true, certain, and proper of that which I cannot surround with any intellectual outline. Such knowledge is notional or by way of notion, and yet it may be of perfect certitude. Has any created intelligence an idea of eternity or of infinity? And yet what sound mind denies the eternal and the infinite? We may have a notion of both as of the tangent of a line and a circle, a notion certain and true by which we apprehend as the hand can touch what it cannot comprehend by its grasp. Such is my meaning in saying that the necessity of my reason constrains me to believe the existence of God. It gives me a cause to which I owe my existence, but this runs up into a first cause, which, itself being uncaused, is eternal. 6. Does my reason give me anything more? It gives me much more, not by the constraint of an immediate intellectual necessity, but by an implicit, rational, and moral certitude. To this we will go on. And here, unless they be read with the context and in the sense of S. Thomas, I must begin by questioning two dicta that have been propounded as axioms, the one, cogito ergo sum, the other, nihil in intellects, quod non prius in sensu. As to the first, no man never inferred his existence from his thought, no man never need do so, for all men know that they are, before they know that they think, and they are more certain of their existence than of their cogitation. The act of thinking is functional and intermittent, existence is the permanent base or root and condition of all functions. This proving of the sum was never yet needed or seriously taken in hand. It is one of the tricks that obscure a direct light by interposing a reflector. As to the seconsin dictum, the whole disjunctive argument with which we began disproves it. The intimate sense or consciousness of life, of thought, of will, of desire, of fear, of need, all these are vital actions of the rational nature in which we are born. If we do not say, I am, as a conclusion from the premise, I think much less do we know the internal world of our being through the external world of sense. Such sensuous philosophy breaks itself upon the threshold. 
It is the philosophy of the animal world, it reduces man from the elevation of the rational creation to the lower level of a life that lives by sense without reflection on itself and without speculative intellect, that is, without the powers of reason. Leibniz saw this, and enlarged the narrowness of the dictum by adding the words Nisiips intellectus, which opens in the human reason a whole world its own, anterior to the contacts of sense and independent of them. The intellect of man knows itself by its own vital, self-reflecting action. It was not sense that taught it to say, I am, I think, I will. The intellect is a power with intuitive and reflective faculties, and its consciousness, except when sleep suspends it, is continuous. Even in sleep the intellectual activity never seems to rest, though we cease to be conscious of our thoughts. It seems to be an sex circumflexa, a perpetual motion, when the eyes are shut, and the ears are closed and all the blinds are down, and the whole world of sense is shut out, this internal world seems never to cease in its activity. As sleep becomes imperfect we become partially conscious of our thoughts, then, we say, we dream. Our unconsciousness is no proof that in sleep our thinking is suspended. I have used the word consciousness as the nearest approach that language, always less exact than thought, can make to express the first immediate and intuitive knowledge that we have of our own existence. A child feels and knows that he exists as surely as a man feels and knows that he exists. Such knowledge is no report of sense, or conclusion of the intellect, or discursive or reflex action of the intellect upon itself. It is life conscious of itself, the living ego, the I am, which is antecedent to all its acts, the source of all its volitions, the judge of its own actions, and the disposer of its own destinies. Now this slash is indeed dependent on sense for all that sense can teach it, but it is dependent solely on itself for all that falls within the absolute jurisdiction of its own intellectual realm. Let us try to find what this is. 7. First what I am, or what being, signifies, I cannot say. I know that what is is, and what is not is not. But if I am asked what is, maybe, I cannot tell, I only know that my own existence is being, neither uncaused nor self-caused, but caused by, a being independent, antecedent, and able to cause a being dependent and subsequent to itself, like to itself, but no part of itself, that is, the cause of being is uncaused, the only independent being existing before all other being, and the cause of all that exists. The oldest book in the world, which I quote here only as history or philosophy, tells us that this first cause gave himself no other name than, I am who am. I, and, am, are both beyond us. They are as two abysses which we cannot fathom, or two rays of light, before the intensity of which we go blind. First of all, then, I know that I am. Secondly, I know that my intellect can see many things intuitively and can reason out many more by reflection and discourse. Thirdly, I know certain necessary truths, for instance, that five and five are neither nine nor eleven, but ten, that two straight lines cannot enclose a space, that a whole is greater than a part, that right can never be wrong, nor wrong right, nor truth falsehood, nor falsehood truth. Fourthly, I know that I have a power to will what I will do, and what I will not do. 
Fifthly, I know that I am bound by an inward instinct to will right and truth, and not wrong or falsehood, and that according to my obedience to this moral knowledge, or dictate of my reason, I shall have to give account. Sixthly, I know that justice, mercy, purity, rectitude, and truth are right, and that injustice, cruelty, impurity, and falsehood are wrong. These things are certainly contained in the intellectus of Leibniz. They are anterior to the reports of sense, and independent of them. If anyone say that they are learned through sense by the teaching of parents, or of the social tradition of the world, I answer that the teaching of parents and of the social tradition of the world are precarious, unequal, divergent, often contradictory, and for the multitude of men ineffectual, that the unthought are beyond number, but that these primary outlines of self-knowledge are universal, unerring, and identical in all normal intelligences, they descend from a higher fountain than sense or reflection, and are found universally wheresoever reason or intellect is found. And whereas I have found in myself a rational discernment of necessary truths, both intellectual and moral, I believe that what is in me by consequence or derivation should be in my cause by original possession, that is, that between it and me there is a likeness. 8. Let us now sum up what has been said. The cause from which I spring is uncaused, like in kind, in intellectual and moral discernment, and therefore a person. I need then no longer say it, but he. And that he is like me because he caused me to be like himself. When it is declared, as by the definition of the Vatican Council, which I quote here as a fact, not as an argument, that God may be certainly known pro QUCE facta sunt, it is not said that God may not also be known by other ways, nor is it said that the rational nature of man is not the most eminent of the things that were made, and one at least of the most luminous proofs of the existence of God. St. Paul, I quote him not as an apostle, but as a reasoner, says that they who resist this proof of the existence of God are, inexcusable, asterisk he affirms that the works of creation prove the power and the divinity of God. But this external proof he does not forbid the fullest use of the proof that lies in the inward being, that is in the intelligence and conscience of every man. This proof, however, is subjective, and cannot be proposed to other men without risk of rejection. The proof per oque factor sunt is objective, and may be universally proposed to all rational intelligences. To reject it does not lessen its force. It only proves that they who reject it are out of square with the common reason and common sense of mankind. The primary notion of cause is voluntary action. But voluntary action implies a will, and a will is a asterisk Romans I. 20. Vital and exclusive property of a person. This I feel in myself, and see all around me in persons like myself. Long before I came to know a mechanical cause or a chemical cause or any cause that does not traceably spring from the voluntary action of a will, I fully knew my own power of causation. My first notion of the cause, then, is personal. Next, when I see that one generation of men is the cause of another, and that the offspring has the same slash am and will and power of reproduction in all things like to its cause or parent, I have proof that this personal cause communicates its likeness. 9. It has been the fashion of certain writers to deny the argument from design, and to call Pally's argument the watchmaker's argument. 
we are told that it is mere assumption to say that if A is proportioned to B, and C results from their joint action, there was any design in these relations of proportion and production. Such objectors do not deny that the whole material world holds together as a mechanism in perpetual and uniform activity, and that the growths and productiveness of nature in all its forms from a man downward to a blade of grass, exhibit always and everywhere a steadfast and unfailing course. They dare not ascribe it to chance, but they will not let us ascribe it to design. To invoke chance as the cause of unerring uniformity would expose them to ridicule. To allow us to affirm that the universal fitness, proportion, adaptation, and ceaseless activity of all things, and of each in its kind and of all to their several ever-recurring ends, or consequence if you will, to allow us to affirm that this is by design would affirm the provident intelligence and the presiding will of the designer, that is, of God, by whom all things were made. This seems to me shallowness circumflex or want of logic. We affirm the existence of a designing mind by a strict and worldwide induction founded on the observation of nature. Let me suppose that I find on a heath not a watch with all its refined structure, but four cannonballs piled in a pyramid, three for the base and one for the apex. To ask me to believe that this artificial juxtaposition, which is one of the most complex and delicate relations out of many in which four balls may lie together, was accidental or the result of haphazard taxes my credulity too far. But let me suppose further that such pyramids were to be found all along the Watley Street from London to Chester, then the haphazard philosophers would begin to talk of the uniformity of chance. Take into account the conditions of these balls, the weight, form, mobility, the denial that any designing hand had piled them as they were found would not be received by any jury as credible even upon oath. If it be said that such balls have a special bias, or aggregative tendency, why do not all such cannon balls in all the arsenals of the world pile themselves without hands? Moreover, what is bias, or tendency, or aggregation? This is not to reason, but to ramble. 10. But to pass from an illustration so trivial and obvious. Let us take two other examples. The whole world of flowers and of fruits, so manifold and various in its results, springs from five conditions, of which four are universal, the earth, the air, the rain, and the sun. There is only one condition that is specific, namely, the seed, or germ, or graft, or grain, from which every flower and fruit exclusively springs. In form, color, texture, symmetry, every fruit has its own bulk, tint, flavor, odor, with a minute identity of likeness, each to each, according to its kind. All this lies in the seed or germ. No lens could discern the several properties or potentialities of each. To tell me that all these agencies and results are not by design is to tell me that they all invariably come by chance, but to tell me that chance is the mother of uniformity is to tell me that crooked is straight and straight crooked. The other illustration is from Paul, but I still quote him, not as an apostle, but as a philosopher. S. Paul says, every house is built by some man, but he that made all things is God. Asterisk Aristotle would say, as the shoemaker is to the shoe. Nowadays this argument by analogy is called the, argument of the, carpenter. 
It has never been safe to make merry with the carpenter. Julian, when going on his last expedition, asked a Christian, What is the carpenter's son about? The Christian answered, Making your coffin. Julian never came back. 11. But I am not going to the carpenter's shop. Those who deny a divine design in the universe do not venture to deny the designs of men in human history, human science, human invention, and in the intellectual world of human creation. I know a priori my own designs and though I cannot know a priori the designs of the Creator, I can say, as my designs are to me, so I believe all that I see is to Him. All that is written in history, and all that envelops us in all our life is the result of intelligence and will designing and effecting, wisely or unwisely, the ends that we have in view. If the firmament, the earth, the sea, and all animate and inanimate life bear certain witness for a creator, assuredly in Tero Quce Factor Suntia.he first and asterisk Hebrews 3. 4 chief of all works, the witness of which is most luminous and peremptory, is man. To act and live by design is the law of his highest perfection, to act without design is to degrade his rational nature, to act with perverse design is to destroy himself. But if the whole history of human action is the history of design accomplished or frustrated by man, with what semblance of reason can any disputant say that by man alone the power and works of design are revealed, but that in the whole universe no proof of design can be discovered? I fully accept Lord Bacon's declaration. I had rather believe all the fables in the legend, and the Talmud, and the Al-Quran, than that this universal phrase is without a mind. Asterisk 12. My purpose thus far has been to give very briefly the reasons for affirming that I find a necessity constraining my reason to believe in the existence of God, and for adding that it would violate my reason not to believe in the existence of a first cause, a source of all being and of all motion by which all things were made, that is to say, a personal intelligence and personal will, the reflection of which I find in myself, the cause and creator of all, ungazed and uncreated himself, and because he is uncaused therefore, 